From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She went to the emergency room at a Colorado hospital for difficulty breathing and left with some over-the-counter pain meds. Then came the exorbitant bill. So without knowing it, being scared, I signed away my rights before I could get tested for any issues I thought might be happening to me. Her story helped get a new state law passed that protects Coloradans from similar medical billing nightmares. Then, voter voices. What issues are top of mind for Colorado voters and how that's shaping CPR news coverage of the election? Plus, jazz legend Gerald Albright could live anywhere in the world, but he chooses to call Colorado home. When we got here, we were like, wow, we really moved to Colorado. We did this. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Hospitals in Colorado must now screen patients and offer help paying medical bills. They're also required to limit how much they charge patients for monthly bills, even after they've received care. Not everyone will qualify, but everyone can request support. It all comes down to knowing your rights and asking questions. These new protections are thanks to a state law that took effect September 1st. Reggie Compton of Loveland knows firsthand the shock of receiving an astronomically high hospital bill and the very real stress that comes with trying to figure out how to pay what she could not afford. Her story will likely strike a chord with many. She testified before the state Senate Health and Human Services Committee last year. I recently went to an urgent care in Loveland, Colorado, due to intense pain on my side and difficulty breathing. I rarely visit the doctor, but the pain had been disrupting my work and sleep for weeks. The appointment was super brief, about 15 minutes. The doctor barely asked any questions before suggesting that I had a blood clot. Um, Without doing any tests, he told me this blood clot could be thrown to my heart and may be life-threatening. I was terrified. He then called the emergency room at a nearby hospital at UC Health and told me they were probably in network, but he couldn't make any promises. Though he was supposedly scared for my life, he never called an ambulance. So I took time to actually verify in between that the ER was, in fact, in network. And then I drove to the hospital. Upon intake, the staff asked me to sign a waiver saying that the hospital couldn't guarantee the cost of treatment and would not be liable if all staff were in my network. Being scared for my health and overwhelmed by the paperwork, I trusted the experts and I signed. All tests came back negative, and I was actually sent home with three ibuprofen and a $6,000 bill. For months, I've been in a frustrating battle with the hospital and the insurance company to find a way to lower my debt, but I keep getting strung along with no one providing answers. The lack of transparency and communication is frustrating, confusing, and the time commitment is like a part-time job. I'm lucky that I have the flexibility that a lot of Coloradans don't have, um, but we really need to fix this. And Reggie joins us now. Thank you. It's nice to be here. There are usually often emotional stories that inspire legislation of this kind. And yours was one of them. Six 
$5,000. For an ibuprofen prescription. Wow. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about your story and thinking, um, did your difficulty breathing come back when you got that bill? <laughs> I know. If I didn't have an emergency before, I probably did that at that point. What are your thoughts about the steps that Colorado has taken to prevent situations like yours? And do you think this law is enough? I hope it's enough because I, it's at least a step in the right direction. There were bills that were passed previously, I think in 2012, if I'm right, that were supposed to help prevent things like this. But I signed those rights away when I went to the ER. They make you sign things, or they used to make you sign things, to get them out of that liability. So without knowing it, being scared, I signed away my rights before I could get tested for any you know, issues I thought might be happening to me. And I do hope, you know, I haven't had to use the ER, the urgent care since this bill passed. So and I'm sure you're pretty <laughs> hesitant, like, wait, am I dying? Okay, no. Exactly. If I'm not dying, I'm not going to go. Um, but I, you know, I, I hope that this does help. And I have been assured by other people, especially, you know, people at um, CHI, for instance, that this has helped some people um, and it continues to help people. So hopefully, you know, um, my bills in the end, they were actually um, they, I don't know what you would call it, but they basically dropped all the bills because I went through the process of getting financial aid, which is the only way to get out of that series of collections. So because they actually scrubbed those bills for me, which was very lucky, it was a God thing for sure. Everything worked out perfectly so that could happen. And I had people who helped me um, within that healthcare system. But without me having sort of this luck or God or whatever you want to call it, I would have owed my $6,000. So I'm sitting here today being an advocate for something that can change this because most people don't have the time to fight these bills. And ultimately, they either go into collections or they actually had a really bad emergency and they're going to owe hundreds of thousands of dollars. So and I've heard those stories as well. To help us better understand what this law entails and who it's designed to support, we're now joined by Julia Char Gilbert, a policy analyst with the Colorado Center on Law and Policy, which led the legislative effort to back the bill, and also Adam Fox, deputy director of the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative, which Reggie mentioned and which also provided her with some support. Both of you, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Before we get more into the law, what do you think about Reggie's story of feeling as though she had to sign her rights away to get help in what could have been potentially a medical crisis? I think this is something that we hear a lot from folks in Colorado because especially in an emergency or if you're not feeling well, you're asked to sign a lot of paperwork when you go in to receive healthcare services and you don't necessarily know what you're signing. You may be in distress. You may be feeling really poorly. And that makes it really hard for individuals to be able to read through that paperwork, which is really complicated as it is, and understand what they're really signing. So that's a problem that I think we're still going to grapple with to an extent, even with this new law. But this new law will really help resolve some of the bills that happen when after people get treatment. Julia, what do you have to say about it? Sure. I'd say we're sort of striving to create a Colorado where no one 
pauses before seeking critical medical care that they or their family member needs because they worry about the financial distress that they might incur as a result. And likewise, we don't want anyone to pursue needed medical care in a hospital facility or elsewhere um, and find that they are um, dealing with long-term medical debt as a result and the many cascading negative impacts um, that that has on families. So we're hopeful that this law is a meaningful step towards um, achieving that reality for Colorado patients. Again, this legislation went into effect on September 1st, and we should note that the bill was sponsored by Representative Iman Judah and Senator Janet Buckner, both of our Aurora, along with Senator Chris Coker of Centennial. So, Adam, let's start with the basics. What is House Bill 1198, and what does it entail? Really, what this bill does is it it puts a much finer point on the requirements that hospitals have to meet. Uh, from the the earlier law that we passed back in 2012, that was really a step in this direction, but was not explicit enough. Um, and what this really means is hospitals are required to screen patients uh, who are uninsured. All patients. All patients who are uninsured have to be screened. If you have insurance, you have to ask to be screened. Um, and ultimately, from that screening, hospitals are supposed to tell you whether you may qualify for public health programs or determine if you may qualify for hospital discounts as well as payment plans. And that's really to put the responsibility essentially on the hospital to provide some of the community benefit that they're supposed to provide um, and really hold them accountable to what that 2012 law really envisioned. And Reggie mentioned this. So this law keeps the debt collectors away? It does in many cases. Uh, Really, for those folks who qualify for hospital discounted care um, because of their income, the amount they'll be charged is capped. The amount they can be charged through a monthly payment plan is capped based on a percentage of their income. And that really means it's going to be much easier to avoid Uh, medical debt and pay off these bills. And they may get written off entirely, um, similar to the case that Reggie had um, still. But there's, I think the important thing is it's going to be much more of a process that the hospitals have to follow before sending somebody to collections. They can still send people to collections, but they have to comply with all of the requirements of this new law to screen people to make sure that the people who qualify get the assistance they're supposed to, and they can't send people to collections after missing just one bill. What are the income levels that fall under this law? So the law really sets the the floor that hospitals have to meet, and they have to provide hospital discounts to folks up to, uh, at least up to 250% of the federal poverty level. So for an individual that they can make about $2,800 a month, Um, Or for a family of four, they can make almost $5,800 a month and qualify for hospital discounts. But again, that's the floor that hospitals have to meet. They could provide financial assistance beyond that point. um, And we do see some hospitals doing that. Yeah, and it seems like sometimes you just need to ask. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's the important thing is you have rights, ask the questions, um, don't don't feel like you have to put up with uh, situations that feel like you're being mistreated because you probably have more protections than you realize. Julia, you wanted to add something? 
Sure. So the discounts are available to you regardless of your insurance status. So you don't need to be uninsured or have health insurance in order to qualify. The discounts are also available to you regardless of your citizenship or immigration status. And so provided you meet the income requirements under the new law, these are discounts that are meaningfully available to you. How is that monitored? Yeah, absolutely. So I say there's sort of two pieces to that. One is under the new law, the Colorado Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing, a state agency in Colorado, um, is given authority to um, collect data from hospitals to ensure they're complying with the new law. And in instances where a hospital is not complying, the state has the authority to put that hospital on a corrective action plan um, or even issue fines until the hospital is compliant. I would say the other piece of that is that patients, community members, folks like us, are able to help with help the state um, ensure compliance among hospitals by letting them know what issues they're encountering on the ground. So, for instance, if you go into a hospital, um, try to access hospital discounted care and, and encounter a barrier, encounter a problem, you're able to file a complaint with the state of Colorado, which is basically a, a way of letting the, the state know what challenges you're encountering so that they're aware of what gaps or problems may exist on the ground and can work with the hospitals to try to rectify those problems. Now, you both have used the term screening. What does that screening look like? I think the the screening for hospital discounts will be much more high level and basic. People won't necessarily have to provide a whole lot of documentation for that. Really just providing basic information about uh, the number of people in their households, uh, their household income, those basic pieces of information that a hospital needs to determine, okay, you may qualify for discounts or actually you might qualify for Medicaid or a different program and direct them accordingly. But then there's the application process in which somebody will need to provide more documentation. But we which, which can take place at a later date, not yes. when you're, say, profusely bleeding in the ER right. at I, that moment. I mean, I think it's important to say, um, especially for people in emergency situations, this conversation is most likely going to happen. The screening itself, uh, much less the application, is going to happen after somebody receives the treatment they, they need. So all of this can be done sort of after treatment is received. But the, the application process is going to require people to provide uh, sort of documentation about their income, but they only have to provide one form of documentation. Um, whereas prior to this law going into effect, we saw hospitals requesting everything from bank accounts, asset information, mm. income verification, pay So studs. basically like getting a mortgage. <laughs> yeah. A, a more extensive sometimes, honestly. Wow. Oh, your bank account. I mean, I had to provide, I, I was lucky because um, I, I work for myself, but I incorporated, which is a process that most small businesses don't have to go through. But because I was incorporated, they didn't look at everything. Wow. If I wouldn't have been incorporated, they wanted multiple months of bank account information, like years worth of bank account information, which I thought was very invasive. So, Julia, I can't imagine hospitals were happy to see this passed. Um, I would say that consumer advocates like folks at the Colorado Center on Law and Policy and the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative were really eager to make sure we were engaging with all stakeholders, including folks from the hospital industry, early in this process to make sure that we could craft a policy that met the really urgent and immediate needs of Colorado patients, but still felt feasible for hospitals in Colorado to implement. Um, and I think ultimately we were pleased with hospitals' willingness to come to the table and work with us to find a solution um, that felt uh, feasible for them 
them and appropriate given the emergency on our hands for Colorado patients and medical debt more broadly. Just to kind of reiterate what Adam mentioned, can you kind of hone in on what the key protections are that this law enables? Sure. So under the new law, as Adam mentioned, hospitals are required to screen uninsured patients and any insured patient who asks to be screened. This is a way to identify various different ways that um, patients might be eligible to receive help with their hospital bills, including discounts. Under the new law, these discounts that hospitals are required to provide low and moderate income patients will really make sure that the amount that patients are liable for paying for their hospital services is kept to a manageable level, just a small fraction of their monthly household income. And that process of paying off those hospital bills does not go on indefinitely. Under the new law, if a patient makes 36 monthly payments on that payment plan offered by the hospital and there's still a remaining balance left over, the hospital has to consider the bill paid in full and forgive the remaining amount by those problems. Adam, Reggie stated earlier in sharing her story that she ultimately had to turn to your organization, the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative, for support. What type of support does your organization provide in helping people handle these type of situations? Uh, So we do run a consumer assistance program that we started back in 2018, and that's really to help Coloradans navigate medical billing issues, uh, insurance claim denials. There are a whole host of issues that we see. Um, used to have to navigate folks through a lot of surprise bills, which are now mostly prevented be- mm-hmm. because of state and federal law. But I think also what we have tried to do with our partners over at CCLP, the Colorado Center on Law and Policy, is provide some guiding resources for consumers, particularly around this new hospital discounted care uh, through our website so that people can really navigate this better on their own. But if they do get stuck um, and are really just running into problems accessing that financial assistance that they may qualify for, that's when they can reach out to our consumer assistance program. And you have some resources on your website? Yes, that's correct. Um, so people can go to cohealth.co slash hospital discounts. Um, and there we have a sort of high-level fact sheet about the hospital discounted care program and what people should expect and a very in-depth guide to patients. Um, and all of those materials are available in multiple languages. Let's expand this conversation a bit. Coloradans, as you mentioned, also have legal protections against surprise medical billing a law that went into effect in January of 2020. Can you remind us what that law entails? Sure. I will say uh, there are a lot of things in in healthcare that feel like a surprise bill. Um, but <laughs> but oh, what, yes. we're, what we're really talking about um, are those instances where somebody goes to an in-network facility but is treated by an, a provider who may not be part of your insurance network or in an emergency situation where they ended up at an out-of-network hospital. It used to be that patients were were essentially billed uh, or balance billed after their insurance paid uh, some amount to the provider. And often those balance bills were very much inflated. Um, so thousands of dollars, probably five, six, seven, eight hundred percent of what they would pay if that provider were part of their insurance network. Now, because of the state law that we passed in 2019, as well as the federal law that went into effect the first of this year, Coloradans are pretty well protected against those out-of-network 
balance bills, which is sort of the traditional definition of surprise bills. Any other health care billing legislation on the horizon in Colorado, maybe for the <laughs> next legislative session? I think health care costs are still a, a huge concern for individuals, for families, for small businesses. So I think the short answer is yes. I, I think it's probably too early to know what is going to be coming this legislative session or beyond um, because there's an election coming up uh, in November. And that that may determine a lot of uh, what what the options could be. So I think there's that political reality about how we continue to move forward and make sure that Coloradans are protected from medical debt and really high cost bills. In closing, Adam and Julia, can you just give advice for those, regardless of income, what is your advice to Coloradans dealing with a medical billing issue? Let's start with you, Adam. I think first and foremost, if you're at a hospital, request to be screened if you haven't been already for hospital discounts, because that can tell you whether you may qualify for public health programs, hospital discounts, or other forms of assistance that can save you thousands of dollars. Um, but I think also our general advice to consumers, if you get a bill that seems higher than you anticipate, always request an itemized bill. There are so many billing errors in healthcare um, that if you request an itemized bill, you may be able to discover duplicate charges or charges that just don't make sense based on the care that you are provided. It takes time and research and it's hard. Um, and that shouldn't be how it is, but that's where we are right now until we can improve the system more. Julia, final words? I would just add that patients in Colorado and in the United States have robust patient rights. Not all of us are aware of what we're entitled to as patients, um, but understanding that you have protections as a patient um, in terms of the care you receive, in terms of how you were treated in the billing process, in terms of the information you're entitled to going into the collections process, for instance. And so if something feels wrong, if you feel as though you are being treated unfairly or in a discriminatory way or your rights are being violated, that may very well be the case. And so documenting what's happening as you move through the process, hanging on to documents that you receive from the hospital, hanging on to bills that you receive, um, keeping a log of conversations you have with the hospital billing department, logging when you get calls from your debt collector or what have you. This information can help you if you decide you want to, for instance, file a complaint with the state under the new law, file an appeal with the hospital about a decision you disagree with related to accessing hospital discounted care, or ultimately under the new law, if you're sent to collections in violation of your rights as a patient, you can ultimately take legal action. And so understanding that there are certain rights to which you are entitled as a patient, I think is the first step to folks really feeling the full benefits of, of the protections established under the new hospital discounted care law. Very insightful information. Adam, Julia, Reggie, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate thank you. it. Julia Char-Gilbert is a policy analyst with the Colorado Center on Law and Policy. Adam Fox is deputy director of the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative. And Reggie Compton is a small business owner in Loveland. Coming up, what voters told us really matters to them in the upcoming elections. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Inflation, abortion, the future of the state, the nation. Colorado voters have a lot to decide in the upcoming election. Well, 
Actually, I am independent because I don't really like either party. I think the Democrats act weak. I think the Republicans act like bullies. I like the middle ground, and I'd like to see some more middle ground. Parse the problems, the people, and the possibilities of the coming elections with CPR News Politics Podcast, Purplish, anywhere you get your podcasts. What will determine how you vote this year? That's what we've been asking voters all over the state to help you set the agenda for the November elections. CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee joins us now with more. Hi, Megan. Hey, Chandra. I understand CPR reporters talked with more than 250 voters from across the state. What stands out? Well, I should say first that this wasn't like a a scientific poll or survey, but there is no way that you can talk to this many people and not learn a lot of really interesting things. Um, One top thing that stands out, which is really no surprise for any of us who have to ever go shopping uh, out in the world, people are worried about the economy, about rising prices, the cost of living, gas, groceries, all the things uh, that we are feeling out there every day. Uh, And it is just hitting people in different parts of their personal budgets. Getting inflation, I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, I'm 85 years old. I've never, I can't remember ever being this bad. So I own a food truck and am transitioning into a brick and mortar. The recent tax for food delivered by motor vehicle. It's just one more thing that we have to pass along to the consumer. So those voters you just heard uh, starting from the beginning are Laverne Urich, Esmeralda Guerrero-Chavez, and Aaron Posey. Uh, and what we heard from Esmeralda is that she thinks prices have gone up at least a third, and it is affecting her family. In the interviews that you've been hearing on this show, which will include candidates for Congress, soon U.S. Senate, U.S. Senate and governor, we're asking them about those issues a lot since they're so important to voters. What else stands out to you from all these conversations with the voters? Well, so we sent the reporters out after the Dobbs decision. uh, And so it might not be a surprise to hear that that came up a lot uh, in conversations. Um, And it's not on the ballot here in Colorado, but it is relevant to many races. Uh, As we've covered, uh, Democratic state lawmakers earlier this year passed a law that sort of keeps legal abortion in state law or sort of cements it in state law. But it's a law. So uh, a Republican legislature, a Republican governor, uh, lawmakers who feel differently on this issue, in the future could uh, put new restrictions in, Mm. could um, outlaw the procedure entirely. Um, So that's something where you could see this issue come up in state level races. It's also a big issue in the congressional races. Um, You know, I would say that the Democratic candidates pretty much uniformly support legal abortion and restoring uh, it nationally. Uh, The Republican candidates have a real mix of views. You've got Senate Mm. candidate Joe O'Day, who uh, has said very loud and clear he believes abortion should be legal for the first five months of pregnancy. And in the the House races, you have everything from our our sitting Republican lawmakers who've signed on to the 15-week federal ban. Uh, Barbara Kirkmeyer running in the 8th District says that she would sign on to to that bill if elected. But then you have like Eric Odd in the 7th district to uh, the Republican candidate who says uh, this should be a state's issue. And so if you send me to Congress, I'm not going to sign on to any bill to legalize it federally or to to restrict it in any way federally. And it seems that tone is very important in regards to politics, but 
for the voters. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting one. We had a lot of people bring up what I sort of came to see as like good governance issues. So they want, uh, can we asked, what do you want the candidates to talk about as they compete for your votes? And a lot of people said, I want them to talk about how they're going to make government work, how they are going to actually do things instead of just attacking the other guy and being rhetorical and, and sort of promising me the moon. Uh, and and a lot of people said, well, I want them to be bipartisan. These were sentiments that came across the political divide. Um, but I will say that, that bipartisanship uh, can sometimes be sort of in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> It's a it's a tricky one. Um, you know, you look at uh, I, I think my example that I really like is our sitting representatives, Democrat uh, Joe Neguse and Republican Ken Buck. They're actually running bills this week together that are mm. antitrust bills. Very bipartisan effort. Both of them are not necessarily lawmakers that you would think of as sort of middle of the road or sort of constantly yeah. bipartisan. They're very much members of their party, but they work together on this issue. If you're a voter, is that bipartisan enough or do you want to see something else when you say that word? Now, last time CPR News did this before the 2020 election, it was remarkable how much climate and the environment came up as a top issue. And to be clear, as you stated, it was not a scientific poll. And we ended up, of course, talking to more liberal voters than conservative in this instance. But climate was definitely carrying momentum as a top issue in 2020. That seems to have faded a little right now. Yeah, not a top issue. One that people did bring up uh, maybe on their list of issues about as often as abortion, actually. Um, but I think you know the world has changed so much since the early spring of 2020, which was when we did our, our last Voter Voices project. Um, you know, we've been through a pandemic. We are going through this era of just skyrocketing inflation. Um, you have war in Ukraine. There's a lot on voters' minds right now. Um, and also, I think climate change at the moment, because it's a very, very partisan divided issue, it's not necessarily one that, that you want sort of that you have any questions about where your candidate stands. Mm -hmm. You know, the Democratic Party uh, has gradations of urgency on this, but is very sort of has the urgency on on uh, transitioning away from fossil fuels. The Republican Party has a line of, you know, the immediate pain of doing that uh, is outweighs sort of the the urgency the other side feels. It, it may just not be a deciding issue uh, for a lot of people right now. If you know where you stand, you may already just know how you're voting. CPR reporters ask voters what they think has changed in Colorado or what their first impression of it is if they're new here. What'd they say? Well, so I think that uh, if you feel like we are living in a divided state, I will tell you that we are unified on this one. Um, across the political spectrum, people talked about growth, about overcrowding, about just that feeling of having more people here, the, the traffic and the high housing costs, homelessness, uh, crime. Lots of this got, got wrapped up into the sense that Colorado is just a pretty crowded place right now. The homelessness matter has gotten way out of control to me. Um, I just came from California not even four months ago, and it's bad, bad there. And to see that it's getting that bad here, it, it's embarrassing. Of course, the homeless, it impacts every person that lives in this country. I worked downtown Denver for 30 years. You know, I don't even go there anymore because it's so awful. So those voters are Amanda Cohn and Teresa Bay. Uh, I will say Cohn, even though she just moved to Colorado, was actually moving back to Colorado. She mm -hmm. lived here a long time ago. Um, homelessness is an interesting issue in how differently it can get talked about. Um, so self-identified liberal voters uh, generally flamed, 
framed it as sort of a problem of the cost of living, the need for a safety net, the need to uh, mm -hmm. sort of help people out of homelessness. Um, with more conservative and moderate voters, we really heard about it as a public safety issue. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. We often sort of conceive of it as a metro area issue, something that Denver Metro is dealing yeah. with, uh, Colorado Springs. One of our reporters went to Trinidad to talk to people and he said everybody he talked with across the political spectrum in Trinidad, right on the southern border, wanted to talk about homelessness. Really? Uh, like, and, and so he's going back to do a story about it, which is great. This is part of why we do this. Um, but it really shows that this is a, a statewide concern in a lot of ways. Now I want to back up and ask. So you're CPR's public affairs editor. Can you explain briefly what the idea was behind talking to all these voters? Yeah, the Citizens Agenda uh, idea is kind of a movement. Uh, not, it's not original to us or not, not solely to us. <laughs> so you're um, not claiming it, but, no, but uh, it seems to be an But we put a lot idea. of work into it. Yeah. Exactly. It's an idea in the news media to help voters take some control back uh, to elections. So instead of letting candidates or parties or talking heads uh, decide what the issues are people should care about and so what the issues candidates should be talking about, uh, we're one of the outlets that are trying to take our cues from voters about what they find important. Um, you know, it's it, we see ourselves as having a two-way role uh, in democracy in kind of telling, helping people know what, what the people they might elect are saying, but also helping the people who are trying to get elected, uh, holding them accountable to what voters want. While we ask voters what they care about in order to shape the race for candidates, it also helps, as you mentioned, us shape the race for CPR, shape how we cover the races for oh, CPR yeah. News. So we've done some reporting based on voter interest, as you mentioned. What information can help can can people find now? OK, well, I'm going to be honest that the, the biggest is yet to come because we're all frantically working on it in the newsroom. And that is our voter guide, uh, which will be out pretty soon in English and Spanish, which is really exciting uh, and uh, has all the candidates and the issues. Um, but we're already using it to inform stories. Andy Kenny did this great deep dive into where Jared Polis and Heidi Ganahl, what they want to do on housing policy, because housing uh, costs were, are such a big issue uh, with so many of the people we talked with. So you'll see that story and more uh, over the I don't know, uh, like two or three days before the election, a month. How much time do we have left, Chandra? I feel like I'm living in a, oh, in a gosh. vortex of the now. <laughs> it's, it's crunch time, I'll say that. Well, thanks so much for your insight, Megan. Thanks for having me. CPR Public Affairs Editor, Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Pueblo Chili may not be as well known as its cousin from New Mexico, the Hatch Chili. But fans of fiery flavor know which one tastes better. The pepper from Pueblo is also known as the Mirasol, which translates looking at the sun. And indeed, it does point upwards as it grows under bright southern Colorado skies. Farmers have grown it for more than a century, but in 2005, Colorado State University released an improved variety, thicker and meatier, better for roasting and dicing into green chili, spooned over burritos, enchiladas, and just about everything. The pepper has its own day at the Colorado State Fair, as well as a chili and frijole festival and a specialty license plate. And when the Denver Broncos offered Hatch Chili products at concession stands, local chili fans pushed back. The rivalry was hot, more than a little spicy, and in the end, confirmed Colorado's love for the Pueblo Chili. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Dazzle Jazz. Gerald Albright. His name is synonymous with smooth jazz, and the Grammy Award-winning saxophonist has demonstrated some serious career longevity. 
having worked with some of the biggest names in the music industry, like Quincy Jones, Whitney Houston, Phil Collins, and Maurice White of Denver's famed hometown band, Earth, Wind & Fire. A Los Angeles native, he could probably live anywhere in the world, but he and his family have chosen to call Colorado home for nearly 20 years. The crisp air and breathtaking mountain views have inspired much of his work, including many of the signature collaborations that have defined his career. Well, it's a big part of the pie, the musical pie. You know, collaborating with other artists uh, only brings, you know, special music and other great chapters to the listening ear of our audiences. You know, we like to mix it up a lot. You know, I, I don't want to write all the songs and, and perform all the songs by myself. I mean, it's it's a lot more fun for me to be a part of a team and share talents with folks who I truly love on different levels, both musically, spiritually, and otherwise. And it just promotes the music on a higher platform. So it's all about celebrating the music and collaborating is one of those major facets of it that we just know and love. Here's an excerpt from Sheen Magazine. Albright is not only a master saxophonist, he is also a multi-instrumentalist who takes extreme pride in producing extraordinary music that resonates deep into the hearts and souls of people on a global scale. How does it feel to hear you and your work described that way? It's the greatest compliment in the world. I started playing saxophone when I was nine years old, and it was my dream to be on stage and have my own band and write my own music and have a record deal. And I just really have been fulfilling my dream and purpose. And I feel after all these years that I'm just getting started. I I feel like there's more music to produce, more music to write, perform. I love being on stage and and, uh, witnessing the spontaneity of the music and the oneness with the audience. And it, it just never gets old. It never gets boring. Well, clearly you have done a lot with your career. You have sold more than a million albums in the U.S. alone and have appeared on over 200 albums with a wide variety of artists. Some of those artists include Anita Baker, Olivia Newton-John, The Temptations, Maurice White of Denver's hometown band, Earth, Wind & Fire. You've also toured with Quincy Jones and Whitney Houston. What stands out to you as a top career highlight? We spoke earlier about collaborations. I mean, when you're on the stage with a Whitney Houston or a Phil Collins, you're in front of 50, 60, 70,000, sometimes 100,000 people in, in one gig, you know, and and sometimes you look off the stage and you go, my goodness, this is a true testimony of how powerful music is for these people to stand out all day in 100 degree weather. And you can't even see the end of the crowd because it's, it's so massive. Yeah, um, It's just... Uh, it's the greatest compliment for people to appreciate and love what you do on that magnitude. So having worked with artists of that caliber, I will never forget those moments. And it just made me a better person all the way around as an, as an entertainer, you know, it it allowed me to travel the globe and see places that I never would have seen without music. It was just a win-win across the board and the A to Z. So I'm just very thankful that I've had those experiences. Now you mentioned Phil Collins and I wanted to ask you about that. You fronted a big band for and was handpicked to tour with Phil Collins. What was that experience like? Incredible. Um, Phil is a dear friend. And at one point of his career, he wanted to just be a drummer. You know, he's known for his vocals and his songwriting and all the stuff that he did for 
for Disney movies over the years. But sometimes when you dig deep into a, a person's passion, you're surprised at what they really want to do. And there was a point in time where he wanted to do a big man tour and have a couple of featured artists, uh, namely myself and the fantastic uh, Olita Adams. And we all toured together with this big band. And it was a totally different experience than his pop side with all of his big pop hits. And uh, we recorded a record called A Hot Night in Paris, which uh, I had the blessing of uh, employing one of my tunes called Chips and Salsa mm. uh, as a big band arrangement on that particular project. So uh, working with Phil uh, was just like uh, one of the apexes in my career because he, he's just quite a gentleman himself and, of course, quite the musician and vocalist that everybody knows and loves. And, you know, I, I smile at those experiences that I've had with him. So uh, it, it's, it's great. It's great to have that. What inspired Chips and Salsa? I just love Latin music. I was uh, very fortunate to be a bassist and a saxophonist with the great Willie Bobo, who was uh, a premier uh, Latin recording artist for many, many years. And that style of music was very festive and high energy. And, and I really enjoyed that. So uh, out of those experiences, uh, I wrote Chips and Salsa and originally recorded it with a small combo hmm. uh, of just a rhythm section. And then when we decided to do it on the Hot Night in Paris, Phil Collins record, uh, it went from that to like a major big band, powerful sound. And uh, I just love both arrangements because one is very intimate and the other one is just full throttle, uh, high energy with a bunch of horns and a full rhythm section. So it's nice to have, uh, you know, both versions to, to appreciate. your career again it's just so hard to hone in on one hit i asked around to some of your fans about their favorites and they mentioned before i let go with dave cause which is the famed frankie beverly and may's song that i call the quintessential summer barbecue and family reunion song <laughs> you have to have it some also mentioned my 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 ain't no stopping us now never can say goodbye and lovely day. So a lot of hits. I mean, it's really hard to narrow it down after so many years of your work in the industry. What are two of your favorite songs to perform? Wow. Well, we're talking about picking two songs out of 22 records that I recorded. That's, exactly. That's quite, 
<laughs> That's why I had to say so many. It was hard to narrow it down. Yeah, well, you know, it's hard to narrow it down, but I have to say that So Amazing is very important to me because that was my launching pad for my recording career. That was my very first single back in 1987. And I'm a big fan of Luther Vandross, who I was mm. inspired to borrow this tune from. And I've been playing it ever since 1987. So that sticks like glue to my career. I have to do that song on stage or, you know, my audience gets a little perturbed about it. Lately here, I did, uh, on my Slam Dunk project, I did a version of James Brown's It's a Man's Man's World. I love doing that song because you can really dig into the melody and it's it's such a soulful song and, and it's a very open and very simple and honest song in its approach. So I get a chance to kind of take my time with it because it's a ballad and just kind of, you know, put the gravy on it and, and really kind of massage it. all around the world for your music and you are a Los Angeles native but you moved to Castle Rock with your family in 2005 why Colorado well I was at a point in my life where I needed some change you know I had been in Los Angeles all my life mm -hmm. Los Angeles is a place that I truly love um, so I have great experiences there but you know as you get older you kind of want to slow the pace down a little bit and in 2004 I did uh, a big benefit here uh, for a dear friend of mine who was promoting it. And I just mentioned to him in passing that, you know, I've been to Denver maybe a few times, but only to perform one day and then leave and never had a chance to really capture the mm. essence of Denver and the neighboring cities around. And he said, well, why don't you come in a couple of days early, you and your wife and check out the city, look at some homes, you know, just and I play golf, so he said, go to some golf courses and see what you like. <laughs> like oh, he was he was uh, reeling you in, huh, secretly. <laughs> oh, he was reeling me in, you know. So, uh, and so we did that. For two days, we saw about 25 homes, which was a lot of work, by the way. And yes. uh, we went to the downtown area and uh, you know, 16th Street Mall and that whole area and just kind of captured the essence of it. And long story short, we moved 45 days later from that experience. And we just love being here. We're almost 18 years into being uh, Colorado residents, and we're just loving it. What projects have been inspired by Colorado? Well, in 2006, I released a project that I'm very proud of called New Beginnings. And it seriously was New Beginnings for us because being from the West Coast and we've never lived anywhere else, when we got here, we were like, wow, we really moved to Colorado. We did this. You know, just seeing the wildlife and the people were very nice here. It was really inspiring for me to put together. When I listen to songs on that record, it always 
makes me reflect back to when we first moved here. And it was a win-win for all of us as a family. So that, that project, New Beginnings, uh, was one that came out of that move. In preparing for this interview, I reached out to some of your fans in Colorado and one gentleman by the name of Don Stickles of Franktown, near where you live in Castle Rock, told me that he is a huge fan of yours and he was super excited about your recent show in Lone Tree, but he says he's an even bigger fan of you and your wife, Glennis, due to an act of kindness you both extended to him during a specially emotional time. He told us about how he and his wife met you and your wife on a jazz cruise. You, you know, discussed that you both live in Colorado. You remained in touch. He and his wife would always come to your shows. And when his wife passed away unexpectedly, your wife wrote a beautiful letter that was read at her memorial service. So let's take a listen to a little bit of what Don had to say. It's a very wonderful uh, thing that kept me going through uh, what was very difficult times. I read the letter frequently. I take them with me to any event that I go to where there might be people that knew my wife. They immediately uh, remembered uh, Peggy and uh, how special that she was. Uh, You can just hear the emotion in his voice. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How does it make you feel to know that an act of kindness extended to a fan that became a friend meant so much to this Colorado family? Yeah, that's very, very touching. Uh, Yeah, I know exactly who you're speaking of, and they have been so supportive uh, on various levels of my family. And uh, whenever I'm in the the Colorado area, I can always look out in the audience uh, if I'm performing and and see, well, before his wife passed, I could see them as a couple out there really enjoying the music. And then now I always see him in the audience. And uh, I'm, I'm just really glad that he was touched by Glennis's letter because it was, I believe, it, an easy thing to do for her because of the time we spent on the jazz cruises and we always appreciated them as a couple and mm. and the spirit that they emoted. So, you know, they were just great people. And I just love great people. My wife loves great people. And it was a very uh, easy act to do to, to write that letter. So I'm, I'm glad that it touched his heart. And I'm sure that his wife, uh, Peggy, is smiling down on him for all the wonderful years that they've shared together. So that that's a great way to clinch the interview. I appreciate that. Gerald Albright, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. That's Grammy Award-winning saxophonist Gerald Albright, who has lived in Colorado for nearly 20 years. That's our show with special thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, 
Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.